Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Romans, part six. We are getting there. I really do think it'll speed up once we get past these... uh, Maybe even today, we may not finish chapter 8 today because there's so much to say, but it is so, so important. Uh, Quick review of Romans, just to bring us up to speed. So we're seeing this all in context. Paul has laid out a very good case from his observation of his own life, his observation of uh, everybody he knows, and from the scriptures. He's laid out this case that all are sinners. And he stresses that the Jews uh, with the law are not exempt from this judgment, from this condemnation, from this declaration that all are sinners. In fact, he's saying they're even more guilty. They're even more responsible because they have the law. They have their sins spelled out to them in the law, which is something that the, the Gentiles did not have. And he emphasizes that the law while perfect and holy, was never intended to make men perfect and holy. All it could do was condemn. And so he he asked this question a a couple times in different ways. Since the law, uh, when it appeared, since it condemned and convicted, does that make the law evil? And the answer is an emphatic no. The law remains good and pure and holy. The good that the law does is it makes me aware of my sin. Uh, and I maybe should, should uh, clarify, I think what the law does is makes us aware of the depth of our sin because sin was present. Paul makes that case. We were guilty. We knew before the law what sin was. But sin spelled it out and shows us just how far we are from God's standard. Uh, the good that the law does then is uh, spell it out for me and... Reveal to me my desperate need for redemption, for forgiveness, for salvation. But the law does not provide that salvation. It only shows me my need for it. God's standard is righteousness. But if the law makes it clear, we can never meet that standard. So what is the answer? The answer, according to Romans, is faith. Faith in God. Even before the law, the answer was faith. And Romans chapter 4 gives us the picture of Abraham, uh, which is, uh, of of course, something that's going to resonate with his largely Jewish Christian audience uh, or the recipients of this letter at that time. Abraham was the father of the faith. And it says uh, in, in Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And this was before the law. Uh, And so it brings up the question then, why is it so hard to be righteous? If righteousness is what God requires, and if the law shows us what righteousness is, why is it so hard to do? Because it's one thing for, say, the law spells our sin out, but the law also spells out good behavior and tells us what to do. It even tells us, look, if you sin, when you sin, here's the sacrifice system. Here's how to respond to it. Why was the law not just difficult, but impossible to keep? This is a struggle, and it's a real question. And the answer, according to Romans chapter 5, is that we inherited 
a sinful nature because Adam sinned. We, are, we were in Adam. All of us were in Adam when he sinned. Therefore, when he died sinning, we all died in him. This is so important. I know we know it, but I'm still going to spend a few minutes on this because it is crucial to understand this point, to understand Christianity, if we're going to understand it properly. We had, in, uh, in, when I was in high school, I don't even remember the actual name of the class. We just called it the isms class. Did anybody else have the isms class? Lisa, did you have isms? What was the name of it for real? Do you know? Yeah. What's that? Religion and reality. Uh, but it, 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 we studied uh, different government systems. We studied democracy and uh, communism and the Nazis. And, and we compared the different uh, socio, socioeconomic models, sociopolitical models. And then we spent some time discussing world religions. I don't know if they do that anymore, but it, it was just all designed to help us understand why different people thought different ways, acted different ways, lived different ways. And uh, when we got to Christianity, the teacher, who's a good guy, I liked him, wasn't a great teacher, but he said uh, Christians basically believe that there is a heaven and there's a hell and that Jesus came to earth to teach men how to live and so that we can be good and if we, are, if our, if we do more good than bad, we go to heaven and if we do more bad than good, we go to hell. And I'm listening to this, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, what, what, what do I do here? What do I say? And before I could say or respond or even decide to say or respond, uh, a girl in class spoke up. She said, that's not what Christianity is. I'm like, ah, I've got an ally. And so from then on, we were kind of going back and forth with the teacher for the couple of days we were talking about Christianity. And it turned into a great opportunity to share the gospel with the class. Uh, and the, the teacher even referred to me at least once as Reverend Millis. Even if he did it with an eye roll, I considered it an honor. <laughs> Suffering for the gospel. You know, he just he'd sort of raise your hand to ask a question and make a point. Yes, Reverend Millens. But seriously, do you know how many people think that that's exactly what Christianity is? An awful lot of people who call themselves Christians think that's what Christianity is. Let alone... Uh, a huge portion of the world that even pays attention to Christianity. That's what they think. That's why they make these stupid comments about, oh, what a ridiculous belief. There's some sky daddy who's watching us to see if we're good or bad. And if we're not good enough for him, he's going to curse us forever to be tormented in flames. Yes, that's the kind of religion I'm looking for. <laughs> that's not what Christianity is. You know, Islam does teach that, more or less. That you live a good life, and they've got a very strict and narrow definition of what a good life is. But if you are better than you are bad, then you go to heaven and receive your rewards. And they're very specific about what the rewards are. Judaism. Judaism, well, Judaism's complicated because uh, Jews, speaking broadly now, this, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but so there's exceptions to this. But they... they uh, they concentrate more on this life than uh, life everlasting. There, there is some, some consideration of it, but Judaism is really all about this life here. Uh, but they do uh, put a heavy emphasis on righteousness. And righteousness is, is a, a title or a declaration that is to be earned with our good works, uh, striving to keep the law. 
other world religions, including uh, atheistic ones, maybe especially atheistic ones like Buddhism. And when I say atheistic, I'm not saying uh, that atheism is a religion. In a sense, it is, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that, that Buddhism, here's another big misconception. When people say things like, well, everybody worships the same God, we just have different names for him. You know, we call him Jesus, uh, the, the Muslims call him Allah, and the Buddhists call him Buddha. That's not true. I want to scream sometimes, I want to punch people, pull my hair out, whatever, because it's, and it's not just a matter of, oh no, your understanding of God is different from mine, so, so uh, it's not just a name difference. Uh, it's, it's just patently false. Buddhism is not, they do not worship Buddha. It's essentially, an, it is a religion without God. They, uh, and I'll talk about it here in a second, but, but polytheistic religions also, like Hinduism, they also teach a version of this, your good deeds outweighing your bad, getting better and better, only in their, uh, in their system, instead of heaven and hell and death and judgment, they teach what? Reincarnation. This karmic cycle where you have to go through a series of lives and religious discipline to get rid of your bad karma. Where did the bad karma come from? From your last life or from previous lives. And uh, you live these multiple lives and work off this bad karma until you finally achieve uh, nirvana if you're a Buddhist or moksha if you are a Hindu. And the, the idea of nirvana is this reaching this higher plane of enlightenment, which is really uh, being free of all desire. And uh, in moksha, it's a little darker. It's this idea of release or even extinguishing this idea that uh, you're finally freed from this karmic cycle of reincarnation, and you, you're, just, you're just done. And these similarities, this idea of working off the bad, working for the good, uh, they exist in almost all religions. And so when people say something like all religions are basically the same, we know what they mean. The details are pretty important, though. Ravi Zacharias puts it like this. He says, people like to say that all religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different, but the opposite is true. They may be superficially the same, but they are fundamentally different. And this is absolutely true of Christianity. And Paul is making it very clear in his letter to the Romans, and I'm not, I'm not to dwell too long uh, on the uh, apologetics angle but this is such an important line of discussion because one of the ways I know the Bible is true, one of the reasons I can trust what the Bible says about God is I know what it says about me is true. The Bible does make specific claims about God, but it also makes specific claims about you and me, about humanity, and about the world. And I can look around and see that these claims are accurate. Again, to contrast it with Buddhism. What does Buddhism say? It teaches, and there, I know there's different strains of, of Buddhism, but again, speaking broadly, it teaches that we are all born with this essentially perfect Buddha nature. That that is the essence of man. And reincarnation and religious discipline are necessary to shake off wrong desires, to reveal the Buddha nature. Wrong desires. Well, how do I know it's a wrong desire? Well, in Buddhism, if you have a desire, it's wrong. Because it indicates that you're not satisfied. You haven't re reached this enlightened plane where you desire nothing. Uh, what you are aiming for is a complete lack of desire. Well, 
Here's my question, and you've heard me ask it before. If I was born with this essentially perfect Buddha nature, where did all the bad desires come from? Where did all the desires come from? Well, it was bad karma from a previous life. Okay, but before that, before that, before that. Where did the, it, it doesn't make sense. It not, not only does it not make sense with the world around me that I see, but it doesn't make sense within its own little world. The Bible says, I was conceived in sin. The Bible says, my heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. The Bible says that foolishness is bound up even in the heart of a child and that the rod of discipline is necessary to drive it from them. What does the Bible say about desires? The Bible says there's good desires and bad desires. There's some things we want that are good and some things we want that we shouldn't want. The Bible says if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Where did this desire come from? According to the Bible, God created us with desires. We are creatures of desire. But God is to be the ultimate object of our desire. When sin entered in, what it does is it corrupts our desires, it turns our desires, it pollutes our desires, and drives us to seek fulfillment and satisfaction for our desires in things, in people, in relationships, in gods that were never meant or designed to satisfy us. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exist. A baby feels hungry. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. But I'm getting off track here. My main point here is that the Bible's claims about me make way more sense and are more obviously accurate than, for instance, the claims that Buddhism makes about me and the rest of you. And they're more logically consistent in their own systems as well. Uh, so Paul hits the sin thing head on. He recognizes that there is this, not only are we sinful, and not only do we know it, but he also recognizes and writes about this tendency we have to justify ourselves, to make ourselves righteous in God's eyes. But he's also making it clear that that is simply not in our power, and it's not in the power of the law either, holy as it is, to produce this justification. Because our behavior is not the core problem. Our behavior is the natural outworking of the sin nature. We are just being who we are. So what's the solution? A new nature. Heart of the gospel, right? A new nature. If we sin because we are born sinners, because we were born of Adam, can we be born again with a new nature? That's the answer. Paul writes in Romans 6 that when we are baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death. That the old man is dead. And when we are in Christ, we are alive unto God. 
And then in chapter, uh, sorry, he also recognizes that this doesn't instantly translate to completely uh, redeemed and sinless behavior. And that's when he starts talking about the role of the mind. First, he reminds us that whoever we submit to, whoever we obey, we are slaves to. And in that sense, we were slaves to sin. And then says, why do we want to submit ourselves again to that yoke of bondage once we are saved? In chapter 7, he talks about, he uses the illustration of being divorced from sin and married to Christ. And then the famous passage where he laments that he, that he makes up his mind to do one thing and then finds himself doing something else. I decide not to do evil and I do it. I decide to do good and I can't do it. The flesh, our bodies have not yet been redeemed to the point of total transformation. The law of liberty in Christ does urge me to do good. But my flesh and the remnants of that old carnal nature still exist in my body. Romans, where we kind of left off last week in Romans seven twenty four, it says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he begins to answer in the next verse, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm going to stop there for a second, because I think this is important. The last half of that verse, in many of the modern accurate translations, is not there. It's not there in the New American Standard Bible, for instance. The part where it says, uh, who uh, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I'm going to tell you why it matters and why it doesn't matter. All right? It matters because of this. If you're reading along here and you're starting to feel good, oh, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if I stop there and I think, am I in Christ Jesus? Are you in Christ Jesus? I am. You are. Right? This isn't a trick question. Are you in Christ this morning? Then there's no condemnation. Why? Because of what Jesus did. And then I read on, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Oh, but I still find myself walking according to the flesh. Not all the time, but sometimes, and there's no qualifier there. So therefore, suddenly I'm reading this verse and I'm thinking, oh, so... I'm only in Christ if I'm walking according to the Spirit and never according to the flesh. What have we just turned that verse into? A works mentality. I'm defining my Christianity by my actions. Where does that get us? It lands us right back in legalism. Now listen, I'm not, this is not a greasy grace sermon. You're not going to hear that from me. Our works and our behavior and our lifestyle, the way we walk is important, but this and this is all Paul is saying that doesn't save us all right but what he's saying here's why and so so it kind of matters so, so, some that found its way into and I preach you know I've told you before my favorite study Bible right now is still the New American Standard Bible there are some great translations out there I preach out of the New King James because I still think I think it's largely very very accurate and it reads a little more smoothly than the New American Standard Bible New American Standard Bible is a good study Bible not a good devotional reading Bible this just I like the way New King James flows so I use it you know Bible there are good translations, there are better translations, there are worse translations, but the, thank God it's the Word of God, and thank God we have access to so many good ones, all right? But, 
Somehow, the second half of this verse wound up in there. And I'm not sure what the original intent was, and I can't, can't swear to you it wasn't in the original manuscripts. But again, here's the other side of it. It is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I, I would just kind of flip it around. Those who are walking according to the Spirit can only be those who are in Christ is not defining Christianity by our behavior, simply saying that that kind of behavior is only possible for the Christian. Does that make sense? Stick with me, because we're going to kind of come back to this point here in a second. In fact, I'll complete my thoughts on that when I end the sermon. Read on here for just a couple more verses. In in chapter 8, verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free... From the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That, had, <clears throat> that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And there it is. I read this verse last night. I was reading Romans 8 again and again, and I came to that verse, and I had this question pop into my mind. I really do believe it was dropped into my spirit by God at that time, and it was just this, which is bigger? This is a phrase that just popped in. I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was a phrase that just, which is bigger? Which, which, which is bigger? And I kept reading this. And if you go back to this idea, these other religions we're looking at, which is practically every religion. And what pe- people have said, there, there's better definitions than this probably for religion. But I've heard religion defined this way. Religion is man's search for God. Man's attempt to get to God. And Christianity is God's reaching out to man. Uh, that's the difference. But all these religions are about what? I mean, wh- whether you're talking about the karmic cycle of reincarnation or whether you're talking about living uh, so that your good deeds... Uh, so that you live a good life and go to heaven and avoid hell by living a, in, and living a bad life. It's all about balancing the scales. We know that our good deeds are being weighed against something because we all know there's bad there too. So we go back to this idea of balancing the scales. This is kind of a little bit what he's referring to in chapter 4, or verse 4 there in chapter 8. says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The law placed a demand on us. The law demands something us that we are literally unable to give. That's the dilemma we find ourselves in under the law. The law of the Lord becomes the law of sin and death because I am unable to give what the law requires of me. All right? So... On one side, we have our sins. And if on the other side of the scale, I put all my righteousness there, it's not enough. Your righteousness is not enough to outweigh your sin. But that's not the world we're living in. Thank God. What we have is my sin on one side of the scale and Christ's righteousness on the other side. Now, which is bigger? Because I promise you that the righteousness of Christ is more righteous than all the sin of the world combined. 
Christ's righteousness is infinitely more righteous than my sin is sinful. That's what verse 4 is saying. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. I think this is proper and certainly easier to understand if we sort of turn those around to get the proper meaning. Because again, it can't mean, because again, at first blush I read that and it says, well, if I'm righteous, then I'm going to be only thinking about righteous things. And if I'm unrighteous, then, then my mind is going to go to unrighteous things. What he's saying is, uh, uh, that, in other words, I'm going to be judged by what I've set my mind on. Uh, and if I'm walking righteously, then I'm going to be thinking righteous thoughts. And what he's saying is, what is enabling you to live the righteous life, to live out this Christianity, is setting your mind on the right things in the first place. If he rec- if he, and he's already nailed this down pretty good. Chapter 7, 6, 7, and 8, uh, certainly 6 and 7, that, this, that there's still this war going on, that the sin nature, there's still a remnant of that in what? In our members, in our body. Our body has not been fully redeemed yet. We've got a deposit on our physical redemption in the form of divine healing. But our body is still going to die someday. Come back to that in a minute too. Meanwhile, there is still in my flesh something that is drawn to sin. There's no denying that. And my spirit, my new man, wants to respond to God. And he's saying, if you set your mind on what it is your flesh wants, that's eventually the direction you're going to go. You will walk in sin. But if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, the way you're going to go is the spiritual direction. You're going to please God. So that's where the conscious effort comes in. We want to please God, so let's set our mind on the things of the Spirit. Now, uh, in, in verse 6 there, still in chapter 8, let me read a few verses here. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, for, uh, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is an exciting verse, and we used to sing a song. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, dwells in you, then he shall quicken your mortal bodies. There's some who say, you read that verse uh, in isolation, and, and, and some people say all it's talking about is the resurrection. The word quicken means to bring alive. Bring alive. And it says, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he shall also quicken your mortal bodies. Meaning, don't worry, just like he raised Jesus from the dead, he'll raise you from the dead. That's just not talking about the general resurrection. It's not. 
He's saying that, yes, sin still works death in our bodies, but if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, he will bring life even to your bodies, your mortal body. He's not talking about our our glorified eternal body. He will bring life to your mortal body if the Spirit dwells in you. Does the Spirit dwell in you? Yes. Does he dwell in you because of your works? No, it's because the Spirit dwells in you and will quicken your mortal body that he will bring those good works out of you. Just as Paul has said, the problem with sin is it's simply the natural outworking of the sin nature. Paul will later say, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And what's that word? Anybody remember that Greek word for work out? semi. It is that something on the inside being worked to the outside. It is our spiritual nature, the nature of the new man, being manifested even in our flesh, even in our body. It's the outworking of the new nature, but the new nature is there. We are in Christ. We are saved. Uh, therefore, verse 12, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let me read those two verses. I think it's those two verses in the message. Kind of got a kick out of this. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent There is nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. Give it a decent burial. By the way, uh, a brief plug here for baptism. If you have given your life to Christ, if you've made a decision for Christ, you've never been water baptized, you should be. There is a sign-up out there. Once we find out how many are interested, then we'll start contacting you about nailing down a date. I know it can be a tricky time of year, but we want as many people to experience that as possible. But that's what baptism is. It is a picture of us burying that old man, that dead man, and being raised in newness of life in Christ. Uh, reading on here from... Uh, Remember those two verses we just read, 12 and 13. Verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be, that we may also be glorified together. There's a a lot to say about this. Let me try to say it quickly. There was a word that came forth. uh, Part part of the word that uh, that, uh, God brought forth through Doug and and what Pastor Mike was saying too about stirring ourselves up. Stirring ourselves up by way of reminder. And this is a lot of what this verse is saying. Reminding ourselves daily. Reminding ourselves constantly who we are in Christ. Living according to the flesh will die, but by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. Daily stir yourself up by way of reminder who you are. And we read through this, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Once again, is this the right way? Oh, okay. I'm not saved unless I'm totally being led by the Spirit. I read it this way. I'm not being led of the Spirit unless I'm saved. Because I'm saved, I can be led of the Spirit. We, we have such a works mentality still 
That's like, okay, well, listen, how can you make yourself be led of the Spirit? Tomorrow I'm going to be led of the Spirit. The Spirit will lead you. You're supposed to rest in the fact that thanks to the new nature, thanks to the indwelling presence of God, I can be. It's not an I have to be, oh, I've got to, I've got to walk this, this narrow line to maintain my salvation. He saved you, and it's a big salvation. It's so much bigger than your sin. And Paul said, that we read this, we isolate these scriptures, and it can be death to us. Oh, no, I wasn't led by the Spirit today in any number of things. Little sins and big sins. And we just turn back a few pages. Which ones will kill us? The little ones or the big ones? They're all deadly, right? Because the standard is righteousness. All right? So we've got the Spirit of God in us. And so we read this in, in isolation, but we read, it, read it even just the passage, and it's liberating. What happens when we're saved? Does God saddle us with this new, aha, now I'm going to watch you to see if you're led by my Spirit. Is he leading us or is he not? What, what is our spiritual response really? It's of people, children who have been adopted by a loving father. Most of you know this, but that word Abba, the closest word we have in our language that translates that is the word daddy. There should be this excitement. Now I can hear from you. Now I can see what you want. What's next, God? What do you have for me today? Where are we going? What are we doing? What do you have planned for me? Because we know it's good. He didn't adopt you so he could stand over you with a whip and wait till ah, wait till you get out of that line. I'm going to smack you dead. You thought you had life. But nope, turns out you're dead after all. Ha <laughs> ha, that's not God. In verse 17 when it says, uh, if we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified with him. It's not talking about earning glory by suffering. I love that line in the Don Francisco song called The Package, where he talks about getting a package delivered to him by the devil. And uh, he tells him, I don't want it. I, don't, I know I don't want it if it's anything from you. And uh, the devil says, well, God always sends me when there's dirty work to do. And he says, this, pack, this box is full of uh, poverty, suffering, and shame. This poverty, sickness, poverty, and shame to perfect you through your suffering till you're worthy of his name. This box is full of po- sickness, poverty, and shame to perfect you through your suffering till you're worthy of his name. And then he responds, uh, Jesus took my sickness and my poverty away. You nailed it to the cross yourself when you murdered him that day. The suffering that I do will be for love, not for shame. I'm already worthy by his blood to bear his name. Suffering doesn't make us worthy. Suffering doesn't glorify us. All that verse is saying is, we are going to suffer some things in this life. We are going to suffer some things specifically because we belong to Christ, but we are not suffering alone. We are suffering with Christ him he goes with us through the hard times through the bad times through the suffering and guess what the end result is we are with him in glory too we are never alone through this thing yeah we'll go through this but we're going through it with him we remain with him until ultimately we join him in a glorified state let me quickly read through a few more one more passage and then we'll like again we're not going to get through chapter eight but we'll land somewhere important in uh, verse 18 Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the, uh, for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. Let me stop there. We are in Christ. In Christ we are new creatures. Paul's going to use precisely that language in uh, 2 Corinthians. But when he's talking here, how we've been made new, and shows how we're being transformed. I love this passage. I love this language because it paints this picture of the earth itself looking at us. Because what happened when man fell? Creation suffered. Now, I don't know. It says all creation here. Maybe I need to do a word study. He might be talking about the whole universe. Well, why wouldn't he be? Because the whole universe revolves around mankind. I don't know that. The Bible doesn't, talk, doesn't address that. It addresses God's dealings with man. Do I think there's life on other planets? I don't. But there's absolutely nothing about that that would upset my theology there's, because the Bible doesn't say so. All right? All I know is that mankind on earth fell and needed a savior. But he says all creation groans. That certainly has to do with the creation that God made for man. God put Adam and Eve in charge of this world. They were the lords of this earth. And when they fell, they subjected not just themselves and their life to death, but the whole earth. Remember, because God spoke this to Adam because of what you did, the earth will now bring forth forth thorns and thistles and so earth itself is corrupted do you think god created the earth to have earthquakes floods tornadoes hurricanes all these disasters no but it's groaning these are birth pangs but the earth itself looks at us and says and says look at what happens there's redemption on its way and it's starting with the human race we are all going to be, and this, is what, and this is exactly what the scriptures tell us, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be a new Scott Millis, and thank God a new Russ Gulliford. We'll, be new, we'll have new bodies, renewed, glorified bodies that don't die, that don't rot, that don't decompose. We are the first fruits of creation. He saved us first and he will save everything that he created for us as well. Everything that's suffering as a result of our sin will be redeemed just as we are being redeemed. And yet we also understand that our redemption isn't complete. Not that God has not completely redeemed us. It's just that that redemption has been manifested, not been fully manifested in our bodies. Again, we have a, a, a down payment. Divine healing 
is ours. Jesus paid for that. But this body still has an appointment to keep. This body is, is it's appointed unto man once to die. And this body's getting older. And I speak health and life over myself. And I declare that when, hey, Moses was 120 years old, his strength was not diminished and his eye was not dim. My eye doesn't have to be dim and my strength doesn't have to be diminished at 54. I can still take my son. Let's go right now, son. <laughs> not now. Because once I took him down, he'd say, well, I got a cold. Wait till you're healthy, boy. Then we'll do it. But... The fact is, I maybe don't feel quite as strong and vigorous as I did when I was 25. And it's likely, even though I'm speaking life and health and strength over myself, that when I'm 80, I might not feel as strong and vigorous as I do today at 54, 53. I'm not 54 yet. Why? Because this body is still subject to futility. What's Paul saying? He's saying we look at the redemption that we do see. The renewing of our mind. The renewing of our passions. Seeing God literally work through us. Quickening our conscience. Changing us on the inside. And what does that tell us? It reassures us that, oh man, the same thing's going to happen to our body someday. Oh, we shouldn't be worried about that. We're not, I'm not talking about being worried. We're supposed to be excited about that. That's right, though. We, no, 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 that's, that's kind of a carnal desire. No, it's not. It's a spiritual desire. He created the, the idea that, oh, the flesh is just evil. It's all about the spirit. That is not Christianity. God created our bodies and said they were good. We made them bad when we sinned. And he's going, oh, I'm going to show you what a good body is someday. I'm going to invest in you all this spiritual stuff and you're going to see glories and by faith, you're going to go from faith to faith, glory to glory. You're going to move mountains. You're going to be so powerful in the spirit and then, and then you're going to get a glimpse of it. And one of these days, you're going to see what your body's supposed to be like. A body that doesn't get tired, that doesn't get sick, that doesn't hurt, that doesn't age, that doesn't de- decompose. A body like Christ's. This is what Paul says we are eagerly awaiting the full redemption of the body. And it's not that God has more work to do. It is finished means it is finished. We're talking about being more and more like Christ here and now for the purposes of God in the earth. He has things for you to do, things for me to do, and we will only do them effectively if we are full of the same Holy Spirit he was full of. I'm talking about working this out in this body. But meanwhile, Jesus paid it all. He did it all. uh, And God himself will finish the work he began when he saved you. When we talk about being a work in progress, we're talking about simply progressing toward the complete, the the work that he completed. We, again, we daily remind ourselves. uh, Let him remind us who we are slaves to now. Slaves to righteousness. But never forget This new nature that makes everything possible is not a new nature that you earned. You did not place yourself in Christ and your righteousness did not earn you this justification. We have experienced so much and we can experience so much more but we have not yet experienced concerning our salvation we have not experienced the full redemption of the body. 
but we will. And praise and worship team, I want you to come up here now. This hope that Paul points to is something that he eagerly himself is awaiting. This is the guy we learn more about spirituality and true Christianity from than anybody else in the New Testament. He's the one who teaches about what, uh, what, what, the right way of denying self, take, uh, uh, taking up our cross, suffering for Christ. And what's he tell us? This spiritual giant that we eagerly await the redemption of the body. He points to eternal life, and it is a real life. It is not some uh, where we sort of uh, meld with the cosmos. Again, this very Eastern idea that we all will just become one with the universe and everything else. No, we're going to be individuals with individual bodies and minds, but we are going to be completely free from the influence, the power, the pain, and the punishment of sin because we'll no longer be in the presence of sin. This is the hope that Paul points us to in Romans chapter 8. It's the hope that I want to point you to. If you, stand up with me. If you have not called upon the name of the Lord, if you have not trusted in his finished work personally for your salvation, then you are not in Christ. All the truths that Paul is talking about are those who are in Christ, are for those who are in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, you right now are already dead in your sins. Your body simply has not caught up with that yet. So I have a simple invitation for you. Will you be made alive today? Somebody did all. We had one person come alive, move from death to life already this morning. Anybody else want to make that decision? Anybody else need to make that decision? I would love to believe that everybody in here has already made that decision. You've already moved from death to life and God is already changing you. But don't let my assumptions keep you from coming and receiving the gift of eternal life. I'm going I'm to offer that invitation uh, to come up here and let me pray with you. Just like I did Sienna an hour or so ago. We're going to sing a song. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. After I pray, you want to come up here and get saved? Come up here and let me pray with you during the song. Also, as I mentioned, this isn't, even though that's our great hope, the redemption of the body, meanwhile, there's work for us here to do. When he talked about he'll quicken your mortal body, he's talking about the here and the now. Why does he quicken it? Why does he bring our mortal body alive? Why does he become more alive in us? Because he's got a job for us to do. There are things he wants to accomplish through you that he's not going to accomplish through me. That's why we're a body. But we can only do those things. As I mentioned, if we're full of the same Holy Spirit, Jesus was full of. Have you been filled with the Spirit? Well, yeah, I'm saved. I'm not talking about being saved. Salvation is what God gave the world. The Holy Spirit is what God gives the church so that we can fulfill. The disciples were saved before the day of Pentecost. But on the day of Pentecost, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's when they received the power to do what God had commanded them to do. If you have never received that power, never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I would like you to come up and let me pray for you too. Just let me know what you're up here for. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for spelling it out for us in Romans and in other places, but I thank you for the faithfulness of your ministers and those who uh, wrote down the things you told them. 
Help us to grasp this. Lord, it's still a struggle sometimes. Every one of us can relate to wrestling with guilt and condemnation. Remind us that those things aren't from you. But don't let us get lazy, Lord. Help us to walk this out in your strength, not to earn your favor, but because you've already granted us your favor. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. But, Lord, I pray now for those who have never received that salvation. If there's anybody in the sound of my voice who has never received the spirit of life, never experienced the spirit of adoption and cried out to you as their daddy, who has never known you as their redeemer and father, that they would come to know you as redeemer, father, savior today, that you would convict of sin as only you can, and you would convince them of your love as only you can, and draw them to yourself. Grant them the wisdom courage and the humility, everything they need to come and receive that free gift of eternal life today. In Jesus' name, and all the believers said, amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.